Well, stand with me and uh, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll read, well, I'll read uh, from 13 to 23. and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is the, uh, before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself may come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. <clears throat> and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, Engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly, established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The Lord is grateful for your word, and I'm grateful to be this place to share your message and I pray anything that is not of you that you remove from our minds so that we can um, truthfully and uh, fully uh, live a life that reflects you. So I just pray this thing in your name. Amen. Okay, so first of all, who are the Colossians? Well, we see uh, a few characteristics kind of spoken about uh, who they are related to Jesus. And um, we pick that up in, in verse 2 when Paul says, he calls them saints and brethren. <clears throat> and also in verses 4 of chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul acknowledges their love for the saints and for the Spirit. And then in verse 6, we also see there that since they had heard the gospel, there's been fruit in their lives from the moment they believed. So it's pretty safe to say these are followers of Jesus, sold out followers of Jesus. But, like there happens to be in a lot of churches, there were some things happening in there that Paul had to address. <clears throat> and we pick some of these things up in chapter 2. In verse 4, Paul says, I see this in order that, I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. And in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We also see in verse 11, he's instructing them on uh, about how they relate to circumcision with Jesus. So that was obviously a, a thing that was being pressured to them. We also see in verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regards to food, drink, 
respects to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. So this was also present for them. And lastly, he says, let no in verse 18, he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worshiping of the angels. So there's lots going on in the Colossian church. And for those that don't, there was one word in there, self-abasement as well. That for those of you that may be unfamiliar with that term, that is a term that people use to harm themselves in order to feel like they need to pay for their own sin by harming themselves. Um, so that's what was going on there. So you had the self-abasement, so harming themselves to pay for their own sin uh, in their minds, and, their, and we had worshiping of angels as well. So, coming back to our passage in chapter 1, we can see there, Paul here now is going to pick up with two fundamental issues about who Christ is that he's going to address. And I'm going to label them the two categories. The first one we're going to look at is called the supremacy of Christ. So, the superiorness of him, him above all things, over all creation, religion, angels, spirits, rulers, dominions, his fullness of deity. The second thing we're going to look at is the sufficiency of Christ in his work. So his sacrifice, his complete reconciliation of all things to himself. So the first part of the supremacy of Christ we pick up is in verse 15. First characteristic named of Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. This is a very interesting statement considering in Exodus, when God first established Israel, he told them not to make anything that looked any image of himself. And so when Paul tells them this, this is very interesting because now they have an image. The image of God. So Jesus is the one and only physical representation of God. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, I'll read that to you. You can jot that down if you want to look at it later. It says... He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power when he has made substitution of our sins. Not only this, in John 14, 7-9, Jesus also speaks this of himself. I'll read that to you. He, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him. And have seen me. And then Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip, that he who has seen me has seen the Father? So it's clear Jesus is God in the flesh, come to earth. And so now when people say to you, man, I need to see God for him to be real. Well, you can say Jesus is God and he's living right now. He's risen, he's living. God is alive. Our next characteristic we see in verse 15 as well. He's the firstborn of all creation. So this kind of goes back a little bit of last week uh, when Andrew was talking about the firstborn and here, um, 
I believe that he's talking in the in the sense of not not in the first born order of sequence, like being the first created of all creation, but actually the possessor of spiritual privilege. So he is the one that uh, possesses spiritual power and authority. Because Paul also substantiates this in the very next verse. In 16, it begins the verse with four. So he is the spiritual power and authority because by him all things were created. So Jesus is the source, and because he is the source, that gives him the spiritual privilege and authority that he has over all things. So again, firstborn of creation does not mean order of sequence, but uh, spiritual power and authority. <clears throat> Another good example uh, of where this is written, this concept, is in Exodus 4, verse 22, uh, when uh, Moses goes to the Pharaoh and he's reiterating what God told him. He said, let my firstborn nation go. Well, he's not talking in sequence of order of birth when he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about spiritual inheritance and authority um, and privilege in that. So there's just another example of what I'm talking about. Next, verse 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So again, Christ is the source, the purpose of all things on heaven and earth. Christ is also eternal, because he didn't need to be created. He's always been there. And he's the reasons that all things hold together and continue moving forward. So that means there's no ruler, authority, dominion on heaven or on earth that has power over Christ. Because they only exist because of him. So Christ ultimately is creator and ruler over all creation. Verse 18, we see here that Christ is also the head of the church. So this means that he's the effective governor and controller over the universal church on earth as he resides in heaven. So nothing or no one should have spiritual authority over our church today except the written word and instruction of Jesus Christ. Now this doesn't mean... This doesn't mean that we can't seek other guidance from other resources or other things, but ultimately Jesus Christ's word trumps all words. And I bring this up because there are many, many other examples of like the Pope who changes the Bible, changes Jesus' words. And people look up to him greater than Jesus. Or even another example is Joseph Smith who's literally inserted things and himself into the scriptures. So it's important to remember, Jesus is the head of the church, the authority, the one we look to for all spiritual instruction. Also in verse 18, he's called the firstborn of the dead. Again, this could be, in a sense, potential, if you want to say, order of sequence. But again, I think it's talking more in the category of 
he now is the authority and rights holder to the inheritance of God after death. The interesting thing about this, this also means that prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, nobody else on the planet was born of the dead. Jesus was the first and only one. So no matter what religions, what um, architectural findings they find in writings, Jesus is the one and only rights holder to the inheritance after death. So you see two beautiful bookends here of Jesus. Jesus is the first form of life, the rights and spiritual privilege possessor. And then you also have the first form of death, again, who is, he's the first one to have the inheritance and authority of that inheritance and death. So Jesus has the spiritual rights and authority over all aspects of life and death. So, why does this matter? Why does it matter that we know these things about Jesus? Well, I think it helps in a lot of ways. I'll give you three examples. One, I think we can have a lot of comfort and confidence in who Jesus is as God, creator, and ruler of everything. We have answers and um, truth to abide our lives off of. We have questions that don't have to sit unanswered. And the thing I love about in Genesis 1, when God is giving his own testimony of someone that actually was there in creation. So when we have things like science and different things trying to figure it out, nobody was there, but God was. And he gave our testimony. He gave his testimony of that, of that time. Second thing is we have no reason to fear the evil in this world or the spiritual realm. Because Jesus has authority over all of it. The only reason that those things are even there is because he put them into place and made them exist. But he has authority over them. So we don't have to fear them. Because we are in his kingdom. So we don't have to fear that. The third thing is we can have joy and comfort in the fact that Jesus, the ruler and creator of all things, is the head of our church. That's pretty cool. We can trust in his words of wisdom and guidance to live and love other people. We don't have to do this on our own. We can trust in his unchanging truths in a world where the truth is always changing. So I really appreciated that about Jesus and all that he is. So next, the sufficiency of Christ. So this is the reconciling work of what Christ has done in its completeness. So we first pick that up in verse 20, when he says, I, we see here that Jesus Christ is the reconciler of God's world. And I think Paul gives us a really great picture of what this, what this really reconciliation looks like back in verse 13. So we have Jesus reconciles the world and this is what it looks like. For he delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
This verse is spoken in a way that describes that the event has already happened. This transfer has already occurred. They're living in the transfer. If they're not waiting to be transferred, they're in it right now. They are currently living in the authority and the kingship of Jesus, going from the, under the authority of the darkness to the authority of Jesus and his kingdom. That's what reconciliation looks like. These two verses between 13 and 20, they also show us that the reconciliation of Jesus did is complete and it's finished. It's not a partial transference. It's not waiting to, you know, cash in the last part of your check to get the full amount. It's done. It's over. It's complete. The relationship has been restored. So nothing more needs to be done when it comes to making your relationship right in God's eyes, aside from what Jesus did. And we see this also in verse 22 at the end. So now reconciled, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So this reconciliation that happened is now they are now presented holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Now. It is done. His work is sufficient and it's complete in fullness. There's nothing more that needs to be done. There's no more blood that needs to be spilled. It is done. So I can hear all your questions in your head and again. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? Why? I already know Jesus died for my sin. Like, why, why does it matter? I need to know it's complete and, and all these things. Well, the first sentence that came to my mind was the best way to know counterfeit is to know the truth. Okay? So the world and other religions and even some Christian circles speak a different message and even a different Jesus. Take a look at our own passage here with Colossians. Remember, in their context, they had people believing circumcision made them right with God. They had believed food, drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbath days, all had an impact on whether they were right with God. <laughs> Even to the degree of self-abasement. That Jesus' death, his blood wasn't enough. I have to actually physically make myself hurt. They're all doing these things because they believe it will make them right with God. I'll give you a couple of examples in our world. The Muslim faith. Okay? They have five pillars. First one is profession of faith. So you must recite a phrase with conviction. The second one is prayer. You must pray five times a day. The third one is alms. So in accordance to their law, their Islamic law, you must tithe. They have fasting, so they must not eat or drink during the daylight hours of Ramadan. And they have pilgrimage, which means they must visit the holy city of Mecca once in their life. Now, if they don't do these things, they are not right with God in their eyes. So you can take, again, even Catholicism. So you have all the sacraments outward expressions of trying to make themselves right with God. Communion. Church attendance. 
And there's lots of other groups like Mormonisms, Jehovah's Witness, other cults and religions. They're doing the same type of acts to try to make themselves right as God. I even put our own evangelical church on the stand. How many times do we think in our minds of church attendance? We have the people that come to church on Christmas and Easter because they think that's what makes them right. When God doesn't care about that and, 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 and He wants more, He wants them in the relationship. How many times do we put pressure on ourselves or other people for tithing in our church? Or you ask people questions like, how often do you pray? Or some churches have, do you have any gifts of the Spirit? Those things maybe make you right as God. Or like we've seen before, how about speaking in tongues? You can even be as gentle of a, of a judgment on yourself when you ask yourself, like, do you read your Bible? Right? Well, that's not written in here. That doesn't make you right with God. Jesus did that. We can go on and on and make our own lists of all the things that we do for ourselves or other people do for themselves to make themselves right with God. But all of the attempts and ways to be right with God that I've described to you have one thing in common. Collectively, they say that what Jesus did wasn't enough. Really, kind of what they're saying is, Jesus, he, he got us most of the way. Like, we're almost there. He got us all, almost there. But don't worry, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to give myself the rest. I got it covered. Okay? So doing these outward acts to try to make yourself right with God is actually doing a disservice to the work that Jesus did. It's saying it wasn't enough for you. So the next natural question might be, so if none of these acts that I described make us right with God, then what's the point of doing any of the things that God has told us? What's the point of reading my Bible? What's the point of praying? When I was doing my study, I listened to two sermons from Dick Lucas. I really appreciate his teachings. He also has a much larger vocabulary than I do, so I appreciate listening to that. Um, he made an observation in verse 13 that really resonated to me when it came to understanding uh, forgiveness of sin and how it relates to us. I'll just read it to you first, the verse, and then I'll tell you what he said. So the verse, just to remind you, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So this is what Dick Lucas said. The forgiveness of sins is not just a great pardon of our past misdeed, but a divine deliverance and a promise of a great future. So we can see that in verse 13. Because he didn't just forgive you your sin and leave you. He could have just left you there. He didn't leave you. He took you from one authority to another and gave you a life to live on. 
He wants something more and greater for us than just to live without sin. He promises us a future with Him, a future hope that we can live for every day. And see, as we take these things that we talked about, like reading your Bible and praying and spending time in church, these things are ways that we spend time with God relationally and we get to know Him more intimately. And we can learn how to walk in His ways that that pleases Him and we bear fruit. And Paul actually says this to the Colossians in verse 9 and 10. He says, For this reason, also since the day we've heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all the spiritualism and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. We're talking about guys that He's already said they love the saints, they love the Spirit. They've had fruit in the, since the moment they heard the gospel. And he's saying, keep going. Keep going. Keep learning about God so that you can walk in a way that loves Him and, and pleases Him so that it bears fruit outwards to other people. So there's more to the relationship we have with God than from the moment you believe. Jesus wants the relationship to grow and further and love Him so you can take that learning and love about God's character and share it and help people experience it. A really easy one-liner that Dexter gave me, it's really easy. It's about relationship, not rituals. That's what it's about. That's what God cares about. And the illustration that really painted an extremely clear picture to me is marriage. So when Laura and I are married, if I do something to please her or to displease her, it does not change the fact that we're married. I'm not more married to her when I please her, and I'm not less married to her when I please her. Because again, when we're married, we're married, and it's over, it's done. Just like Jesus. When he reconciles us, we're done. It's over. There's no more reconciliation we can have. We can't get more right with God or less right. It's about the relationship at that point. So you do things in your marriage because you love your spouse. You spend time with them. You do the things that please them. Just like God. So when he asks you to um, sacrificially love your spouse or love other people, he's doing it because he wants you to experience what he experienced, what he sacrificed for us. Because that's what love is. So anything we add to that message just takes away from everything that Jesus did. And it's, it's something that's can, be, can actually set us free. And we don't have to feel the pressure that we have to make ourselves right with God because Jesus already did it. And we can be so grateful for that. And before I move on to the lessons, there's uh, something, there something I saw that really spoke to me about why, again, 
all of this matters in the grand scheme of sharing our faith and, and all these things. As I was preparing, um, and, and, and you know, and after learning all that we've just, you know, reminded, I've been reminding you about who Jesus is and, and all that he's done. It's important to remember this because when I saw what I'm going to show you, this is the message the world tells us, okay? Do more of what makes you happy, okay? So I'm studying in a room at the gym. I look up and I see that. I thought, geez, that's really interesting. Kind of defines selfishness <laughs> in a funny way, right? What if Jesus said that? We can be grateful that he didn't live by that. So some of our two categories, a couple points to try to help you guys remember. So as believers, the supremacy of Christ means Jesus is God, creator, and ruler of all things on heaven and earth. Nothing is above him. And Jesus is head and authority of the Christian church. <clears throat> no other voice or um, instruction supersedes Jesus. As believers, the sufficiency of Christ means that Jesus' death fully reconciled us to God once and for all. Jesus does not need to die more than once. No other sacrifice needs to be made on his behalf or ours. Anything we do to make ourselves right with God apart from Jesus alone takes away from the cross. That could mean anything doesn't even have to be written in the Bible. We can come up with all of our own ways in which we make ourselves right with God. But all those take away from what Jesus did. Last, relationship and not ritual. This is what God cares about. This is what Jesus wants. To do things relationally for him and for other people. <clears throat> 